there, welcome to episode 6 of my podcast, British Food A History Lent. My name is Dr Neil Buttery, and today we are looking at what was traditionally going on on the 5th Sunday of Lent. I go to Berry Market to hunt out some important peas, and we look at Lent from the point of view of evolutionary biology, including another wee chat with Professor Matthew Cobb of Manchester University. Traditionally, today was the start of Passiontide, a real ramping up of solemnity during the final two weeks of Lent. Like it wasn't solemn enough, right? Even churches were made extra solemn. We don't want any distractions, thank you, so cover up your paintings, your idols and crucifixes. We need to focus our penitent minds. But what is the Passion? We've probably all heard of it, even if it's just from the point of view of the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ. Well, from an etymological point of view, it comes from the word Pasha, meaning Passover. The Last Supper was a Jewish Passover meal. In terms of the story of Christ, the Passion covers the time period between him returning from the wilderness and his crucifixion. This, according to the Bible, is a period of one week, so why Passion Tide lasts two weeks is anyone's guess. It seems the church thought just the same, and realised it made much more sense to mark it in real time as it were, and Passion Sunday was moved to next Sunday, also known as Palm Sunday. So, just like that, we're going to leave it there and pick it up again next week. The last few Sundays of Lent have several traditions and celebrations associated with them. Presumably because everyone's getting pretty miffed off with the whole thing. But we're over halfway now, and there's a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, so let's go nuts and eat something really special. Peas. In some parts of this country, today is called Carlin Sunday, the day dried peas, small dark pigeon peas, are cooked. Carlin's being another name for these peas. I very much doubt anyone got very excited about this one, but top marks for looking on the bright side of things. If you're saving your dried peas for a special occasion, then things have gotten pretty bad. A place where these little peas are still eaten is Lancashire, and I went to the world-famous Berry Market to hunt them out. I wanted to know the proper way to cook and serve them. I'd heard tales a few times of a slightly vomit-inducing appetizer called Pea Wet, which is the watery juice skimmed off the top of the cooking peas and drank as a little aperitif, which, to be honest, listeners, makes me want to heave. Anyway, this is how I got on. Here we are at the world-famous Berry Market. It's very much bustling. It's a Friday morning. It's freezing. We're on the hunt for some black peas. I've been told on good authority there are three places that still sell black peas here. So we've just got to try and find them. If not, we'll try and find some people perhaps who maybe cook cook them at home or remember having them as kids or something. Hi there. Um, I was wondering if you might know where I might be able to get some black peas, hot, preferably. Is there anywhere that is there anywhere that still anywhere that still does them? Bar cakes there, sort of oven bottom. Yeah. It's next door to there. She's got right. the ice cream sign in front. There's a fridge with ice cream in. So ice cream peas. Yeah, it's just ice, ice cream on one side, <laughs> pies, and she does a peas. I don't know whether she does it every week or not. Oh, right, okay. Oh, I'll go have a look. Brilliant, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks. One thing that I really want to ask about is pea wet. P 
Piwet is the starter that you'd have before your black peas, which is the water that bubbles up to the top, that you skim off the top. I'm quite a gung-ho eater, but even that just makes me want to throw up. (laughs) So I want to know if that's just a myth or what. Giant meat and potato pie. Can I try it? Of course you can. Is it cheese onion? Yeah. It's worth trying because we do make a good pie. There's another sample. Yeah. I know. I'm actually. I'm thinking. Can we just eat some pie here, please? Because I'm really tempted. Good. It's really nice. Yeah. Can I? I'm actually just going to come and sit and have an actual slice of pie. Can. Oh, you're going to let me try it as well. Try a bit. Yeah. Thank you. You, you don't. Want me to add a little bit. I'll have another bit. Thank you. You don't sell um black peas, do you? Not here, but they do on the other side of the market. Do they? They're in the back somewhere. Right. Okay. But there's black puddings. I'm sure there's black things. Yeah. I bought mine off the bonfire and I still have done them. Oh, the actual raw peas? I bought yeah. them for myself, yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll seat them overnight, but I've never got them to do. Do you want a little do, bit? Yeah, well, a little bit. We're doing a, a Oh, my podca- goodness, we're doing am a, I being recorded? We're doing no, no. <laughs> we're, doing a, we're doing a podcast about Lent. Oh, but in Lent, everyone used to eat... Car- one Sunday in Lent, everyone ate black peas, carbon peas. That. It was traditional, because there was no food. There was only peas left. So we wanted to f- go somewhere. Yeah, and yeah. I've, uh, this is the place to find black peas. I think they're over that way near black pudding, aren't they? What, when, you, when you're making See, black peas, what do you put in them? Uh, bicarbonate of soda you put, and somebody told me at vinegar, yeah. some put a bit of sugar in. When in with the water is? Uh, after, it's after they've seeped them, when they're cooking uh, them. Right, OK. Vinegar, sugar. My mum used to do them for bonfire night. Great big pan of black peas. Did you have... I don't know whether this is a myth. I'm, so I'm from I'm from Leeds. Also over the border. So yeah, over the border, <laughs> wrong side of the border. Did you have pee wet? Do you know what pee wet? No. I think it's a myth. No. It's Only a drink drink of pee juice before no, you pee. Never. No, that's gross, isn't no. it? Yeah. Well, I don't Good. know. <laughs> what the water off when you've been sleeping on? Yeah, when all the water floats to the top, you just skim it off now. Is it like a little drink? No. No, it turns my stomach. No. No. I'm not sure if that's true. It, you go away from the north and people have never heard of black peas. Not heard of mushy parking, peas? No, Not parking, no, no. Um, all these bonfire autumn type foods. But it's like you yeah. trace it back to. Yeah, it's funny. Well, I'm so, sure you'll find some. Yeah. <laughs> OK, well, we'll see if the lady, the shy pea lady, will speak to us. She was very shy. She was very nice, though, so I hope she will say yes. Hi, it's me again. <laughs> Hi, are you all right? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I just want to order some peas, really. Can I get some black peas? Thanks. But I can see you're a bit busy. <laughs> But are they still quite popular? Yes. Yeah. 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 How much is that? Oh, thank you. Something on the right if you want to. Something on the right. What goes in it? Is it just water? Yeah, just generally steam them and steam them. That's all. Yeah. 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 That's all. yeah. Right. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay. Cheers. There's a shop. Okay. Salt and vinegar. Here we go. Salt. 
vinegar. Right, let's find a quiet corner, let's have a go. They're very hot. Hmm, they're really nice. They're, so they're about the size of small marrow fat peas. And they taste very nutty. The skins are quite soft, they're not tough. I like it. There's a lot of juice hanging to Only if this juice going to the top is the pea wet. I need to stop harping on about it. I don't think it exists. Oh, here comes producer B with a bag full of what looks like fruit pies. Yes. What, Lots fruit, of fruit pies from this store. Did you get a Wimbury pie? Got a Wimbury pie. Good. Got a gooseberry pie. Better, and uh, got a custard better. top. Do you want to try a bit? Um, I didn't. Do you know what? It looks a lot runnier than I thought it would. I know. I was just saying that might be the pea wet, which I need to stop going on about. Wow, these look like black chickpeas. We have a black chickpea oh, curry yeah. in, 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 in Indian cooking. Kala Chana, is it yeah, called? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what they remind me of. They're quite vinegary. I've only put a little bit of vinegar on it. Oh, I like them. No, they're all right. They're really nutty. Not unlike... Kala um, Yeah. They're really tasty. I don't know if it's my northern palate or what, but I actually think they're delicious. No, I think so. Mm-hmm. They're See, I, I was going to say they're bland, but bland isn't always bad, I don't think, because no. it can be very comforting. Mashed potatoes, mm-hmm. you know, bland isn't bad. I think it's very nice. Flavor. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice. Mm. I'm quite impressed. Did she tell you how she made it? Just water. What? Soak them, cook them in water, that's it. So that other lady said bicarbonate soda. So, so I think that's to soften the skins a bit. Right. So, the, yeah. But there's nothing else in there. I was expecting people to say, oh, some onions at least, or like a ham hock or something, or a ham bone. Mm-hmm. But no. And then what, you put vinegar on top? Uh, yeah, vinegar and pepper on top. Oh. Yeah, yeah. tasty. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah. Well, why don't you um, mm-hmm. eat the pea wilderness? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go... Buy some peas, I think. You're gonna buy some? Yeah, I'm gonna buy some. Dried peas. Some dried peas, yeah. And okay. Cook them at home. Hiya, oh, yeah. you've converted us. Can I get a bag of yes. dry ones? How much is that? 150. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you. Take oh, there's loads there. Thank you. Cooking instructions. Place in a large container, add a teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda. Cover with boiling water and leave overnight. Rinse, cover with clean water and bring to the boil. Simmer gently for 45 minutes to one hour. Serve with salt and vinegar. Easy peasy. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Easy peasy. Easy, oh, easy peasy. Oh dear. That wasn't even intended. A very rare on-mic appearance from producer B there. Thanks so much to all the traders and people of Berry Market. It's been at least 10 years since I'd last been, but on my return I realised just what a gem it really is. The produce there is excellent, and it's really worth a visit. If you do go, pick up some black peas. Say I sent you. I've put up some photos of the day out, with some links to Berry Market's website, as well as other things we talk about in today's episode. Go to britishfoodhistory.com and click on the Lent Podcast tab. There you'll find helpful links to this and all the other episodes in this series. And if you're wondering, I took those black peas home... And they do indeed make an excellent curry. I never found the elusive pea wet though. If anyone knows about it, please contact me via the blog or my email. 
neil at britishfoodhistory.com or twitter at neil buttery indeed if you don't contact me about anything in the series that's the place to go When I was a scientist, I studied social evolution, how social behaviours such as cooperation, altruism, cheating and even spy evolved. Behaviours that are displayed by animals or other organisms that might benefit another or harm another, might even harm oneself. People really scratch their heads over things like altruism, where an animal helps another cost to itself. In a Darwinian world where survival of the fittest is king, How can something evolve that improves the fitness of another individual at the cost to itself? The classic example of this is the bee committing suicide to protect its hive mates. For humans who can talk about behaviours like altruism, being nice, and cheating or harming each other, not being nice, moral codes can come into existence. We can also talk about where these morals come from. Did God or religion create our morals? Or did we, as moral people, create God? Well, our genes, aside from making us look the way we do, we know this, they also have us behave the way we do. They account for our similarities and for our differences. There's always variation and there's always a genetic component in there. In fact, there has to be for evolution by natural selection to work. Well, I spoke to Professor Matthew Cobb again of Manchester University about this very thing. He's just written a book called The Idea of the Brain, so he knows a thing or two about genes, brains and behaviours. And he's exactly the chap to help explain this a little bit further. One thing though, before we start, he talks about a chap called Alfred Russell Wallace. Now he was a contemporary of Charles Darwin's who independently came up with a theory of evolution by natural selection. Darwin had written his, but he'd kept it hidden in the drawer for ages. But when he heard about Wallace, Darwin got his ideas out too. Wallace really supported Darwin, and vice versa. How very altruistic. But of course there are morals, and we've got, the reason why we've all got those morals is, goes back to our genes. So that's why, you know, this isn't going to be about religion, but it is. So uh, religion claims that, and and people who reject uh, materialist accounts of human behaviour think that without those, uh, that religion is the source of our morality and without uh, the religion then we'll all be horrible you know do dreadful things to each other mm-hmm. people in the past have thought this about if you think that the thought is is based on material things so it's in your brain then this will inevitably lead to the collapse of all morality because we're all machines uh, and it's actually quite the opposite that our morality comes from our genes in exactly mm-hmm. the same way that the magpie and the crow are building their nests because it's in their genes. Mm-hmm. Our morality, be nice to each other, which is basically the thing, you know, don't kill people, mm-hmm. unless it's a war, of course. There are always exceptions, but those basic rules about cooperation. So we're always told that you know, humans are naturally competitive. Well, we are a little bit, but above all, we're collaborative. That's why we're, what society's about. <coughs> we're not actually competitive. Yeah. And that goes back to our ecology in Africa, when we're small groups living together. And you've got to be nice to each other. You've got to have what's called mutual altruism. Otherwise, you're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's why our morality is the way it is, because of our ecology. So rather than religion providing... Religion is just a parasite on our deeply existing views about... All religions say the same thing. All cultures say it's kind of well, an outcome of it, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, all religion, all cultures say 
you know, be nice to each other, play nicely together, welcome the stranger. Mm-hmm. Everybody does that. What was that? It was a nice phrase that I saw recently. So, oh, survival of the friendliest. Well, indeed. Which I, I quite like. Yeah, that's it. That's, I mean, that's, it. that's essential. Now, Darwin actually discusses this. Darwin discusses this in The Descent of Man. And uh, one of his books, which he wrote in 1871, where he actually finally decided to look at the origins of human behaviour and the human human species, which he kind of avoided in uh, on the origin of species because he was a scaredy cat, basically. Um, and then mm. eventually he thought, well, because lots of even his supporters, like Alfred Russell Wallace, mm-hmm. began to go, okay, well, actually, humans are completely different. So natural selection is evolution is great for everything except humans, which are weird. They were just magic wanded onto the earth. Well, yeah, and the reason why Wallace thought that, you may not know this, is he went mm. to a seance. And he went to a se- <laughs> He did. He went to a seance. And so it was a seance, in, yeah, seance in January. That's important. Mm-hmm. And... They're all sitting around holding hands. And then all of a sudden, the lights go off. And then the lights come back on again. Mm -hmm. And the medium, forgotten her name, was standing on the table. Amazing. How did she get up there? Mm. But even more amazingly, this was January, she was holding some summer flowers that were still wet with dew. Okay. So Wallace went, oh my God, spirits are real. So he goes completely over to spiritualism. And Darwin and some other people start to go, yeah, well, people are a bit different. So Darwin then thought, oh, my God, these fools, I'm going to have to nail it. So Darwin then writes this brilliant book called The Descent of Man. Read, I'm a bad evolutionary biologist. I never read yeah. that one. <laughs> well, one reason you might not, it's, it's, it's bundled together. It was published in the end as two books on the descent of man and sexual selection. You think, what is that actually about? So it's, in fact, two books. Mm-hmm. So the first is about the origin of human beings it is absolutely stunning it was always with darwin it's just one long argument it just hammers away at it mm-hmm. you go, okay right this is brilliant anyway one of the things he raises in there is the origin of our morality and he says you know what this is all to do with our social organization which had a very poor grasp of understandably mm-hmm. because we didn't understand much about yep. human origins in yep. in kind of paleontological terms but he says if we were bees then we'd think it was absolutely all right for the queen to kill her sister and we kick out anybody who started reproducing wasn't you know we'd be, yes we'd have exactly those views if you you know the horrible things that go on in a beehive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is all driven by their genes and we would accept that as perfectly natural so he was putting his finger on the fact that just like the the nest making and the bird our morality comes from our genes and then all sorts of kind of social accretions like lent mm-hmm. back to the point Mm-hmm. Uh, gets stuck on top of that. Yeah, so I suppose it's kind of like, I don't know, behaviour's just the same as some other trait, I don't know, the length That's of giraffe's necks. And it's, so it's, what, it's, it's, right. it can move around and respond to the environment. And the environment, of course, is ourselves. Yeah, so this is what, there's two things there. Firstly, Darwin had this idea that humans tame themselves. So we become even mm-hmm. more sociable. So taming essentially means that, you know, you're not going to, you know, the, cat isn't going to bite your hand off it's going to be yeah nice so we've domesticated ourselves yeah, essentially domesticated ourselves. yeah yeah um but secondly he was interested but not too much in so you were talking about my book earlier on i mean the, the big problem which we don't understand is how what we're, we're doing now and the listeners are doing thinking mm-hmm. how that emerges from the brain how that actually works we've no idea we have mm-hmm. not the foggiest right and this is People have always been worried about this, and Darwin was worried about it. And he read all the stuff that people wrote about it. 
And then he came to a brilliant insight. He was reading some book in the 1830s. It's mm-hmm. just after he'd come back from his trip around the world okay. on the Beagle. And he's starting to think about evolution by natural selection. He's interested in behavior and in humans. And he's reading uh, a book from, this is in 1838. He's reading a book um, which is kind of a summary of ideas mm-hmm. about brain and the mind and how it works. And we know exactly what he did because we got his books and they're now all scanned and they're all on the internet. And there's this big discussion about how, my God, we don't understand the link between Mm -hmm. brain and mind, which as I say, we still don't. So the fact we didn't know it in 1838 isn't surprising. And he just puts a a line by the side of it. And he says, we don't need to know. All we need to know is that there is a link. Mm -hmm. And if there is a link, Mm -hmm. then what that means is that natural selection can operate on a physical structure, the yep. brain, yep. and it can change behaviour. Indeed. And he it's then, a kind of a black box kind of thing, isn't right. it? Like, he as long know as we know it works. He knows there's a link. Yeah. Yeah. And all, that's all he needs from his point of view. So he can understand then that in certain lineages, in certain groups of animals, you're going to get what big one part of the brain is going to get bigger because it's being employed for some function that has an advantage. And once you realise that, that you can change just as you can change the length of your neck and become a giraffe Mm -hmm. so too you can change the shape of your brain and become a human being and very smart or become a bat with you know huge great big auditory areas in your brain and very small visual areas cheers matthew so now we know that social and moral behavior or indeed any behavior or any trait at all can evolve by natural selection now we can see how useful it is to be moral and altruistic but how does something like that get off the ground in the first place Well, I'm going to look at some examples from nature. Examples where the organisms can't have a chat about the rights and wrongs. After all, there was a time in our evolutionary past when we couldn't talk. We do assume, though, like for all the other apes, that we were social. Now, helping others is a costly activity. And if you can get out of doing that, you should, right? Organisms should be getting selected to be selfish. You see, that altruism exists at all is a paradox. It's always better to be selfish. For example, if I'm a bird covered in parasites, I can peck them off, except for the ones on the back of my head. I can't reach those. The best thing to do is to get another to do it for me and then fly off and not return the favour, maybe squawking loser at them as I go. It's always better to look after number one. If you can get somebody else to protect the colony, hunt the food or rear the young, you take it. And since cheating, like any other behaviour, is a heritable trait, genes tending towards selfishness will spread through a population. Eventually, the society would collapse. Because, well, for our example, there's not enough altruists and everyone is riddled with creepy crawlies. Being a cheat is good, but only when there are a few cheats around. Social societies need a way of policing and punishing cheating and antisocial behaviour, and evolution has provided organisms with strategies. For example, any worker bee in a hive who gets ideas above her station, or at least her genes do, and attempts to start producing her own young instead of rearing the queen bee's babies, loses in two ways. Firstly, there are police bees who spot these kind of behaviours and kill the cheating bee and her young. The second, though, is a little odder. The strange genetics of the social insects, that's the bees, wasps and ants, means that a worker bee is more related to the queen's offspring than her own. 
This means that more of her genes will be passed on to the next generation if she helps the queen rather than helping herself. Many mammals live in social kin groups. Everyone shares a lot of genes because they're related. Helping others means helping your genes to replicate and remain in the population for generations to come, including helper genes. But for kin groups, things start to break down at groups of around 50. The group is getting less and less closely knit and perhaps less and less related. Cheetah genes can start getting to work. If hunting and warring, hang back. Don't get too involved. Others might die, but you might get the rewards. Or, if you're on the losing side, you can be the first to leg it. You can get away with that sort of thing in a large group. However, a belief in a common good can increase the strength of social bonds and so increase the fitness of the group. Those with a common good that they really believe in, a god or gods, means they could be better and braver fighters compared to a group with a less worthy god or no god at all. Evolution also, apparently, doesn't like waste. Costly, time-consuming things that are a waste of time should not be selected for, but we see it all over the place. Animals strut about and show off. The peacock's train is a textbook example. A male peacock appears to waste a vast amount of time and energy into producing bright shimmering plumage and a massive multi-eyed iridescent tail. But it's a huge handicap. The time it takes to clean itself and to forage the amount of high quality food to keep it looking so impressive is massive. Plus, it's leaving himself more open to predators. Well, if he can be totally winning at life, and still to manage to be all handsome and healthy, he must have pretty good genes. Only the best males get to reproduce, so not a waste of time after all. So, why have I told you this? Well, it's because humans do all of these things too, and religion really does play a big part. It's a behaviour people display, a collective belief. And it's this belief that makes us do, and I'm talking objectively here, pointless things. Going to church, fasting. Look at all the showiness as well. Building great big churches, cathedrals, the Vatican. Priests wearing the most expensive robes and relics decorated with gold and precious stones. What is the point? To show everyone how much time and money you can spend on your religion is no different to the peacock and his blue train. Remember, this is from the genes point of view. Your genes will do better if you really believe, irrespective of whether it's true or not. Now, I'm not singling out religion here, by the way, far from it. They're showing us in everything that we do. The time and money we spend on our hair, clothes, cars, houses, gardens, keeping up with the Joneses. Everyone does it in their own way, even the most introverted people. Being seen in our best light, which means different things to different people, cultures, and by extension different species, is one of the most important things in life. Okay, now we'll turn our attention to Lent itself. We've talked before about how Lent has been created out of starvation. A time in the year when food supplies are low. No food crops are grown or harvested after October, and no animals are slaughtered after December. Food will not start appearing again until late spring. This is the hunger cap, and the food has to be rationed. Everyone must eat their fair but limited share. There's an evolutionary tension here. There's a common good in limited supply, the stored food. If everyone cooperates, 
everyone should get through the hunger cap just fine. Though, we might all come out of it quite a bit slimmer. But if I cheat, just me, we'll all probably be alright, yeah? What I've set up here is a scenario called the tragedy of the commons. Here's how it goes. Imagine a situation when there's a field, a bit of common ground, in a rural town upon which everyone is allowed to let their cow graze. Here, everyone is happy, but one person decides to be a bit cheeky and graze two cows on the common. Now, all of the cows will receive a little bit less food, but no one really notices, and the cheat gets loads of extra milk to make cheese or can slaughter an extra animal later in the year, or have more calves to sell or trade. But, if everyone has this idea, then there'd be double the number of cows grazing, and their food will be halved. As a result, they might produce less milk of lower quality, bear fewer young, and as a result, the village suffers. That's the tragedy of the commons. So what prevents this from happening? Well... Going back to our food stores, there is the potential of being caught. If the food is in the family home, you're putting your relatives at risk. And they have your genes in them, remember? And people are always watching, especially in small, cramped houses of old. What's the punishment if you get caught? Violence? Shunning? The stocks? But what if there really isn't anyone around? And you know you can get away with it. It's a common poser, isn't it? If you knew you could get away with it, would you still do it? Well, what about if you really are always being watched? And what if the punishment is worse than the stocks? Worse even than having your hands cut off or your eyes put out? Sounds like hell, right? Here's where religion really comes into its own. It keeps people behaving for the good of the community and prevents too much cheating. Religion helps people control people. Now, I don't mean this in a negative way. Lent reinforces cooperation and keeps everyone alive. This is obviously a good thing. The downside is, when everyone does believe, and the controlling people use this to their own advantage, and don't follow the rules themselves. I'll give you a non-religious example. Look at Winston Churchill in World War II. Now, he was tucking into game and roast beef, knocking back oysters, brandy and champagne, smoking huge cigars. Of course, everyone said, not a problem. We'll ration, you eat up, you're winning the war for us. We're all going to croak otherwise. Now, that kind of makes sense. Doesn't follow, though, when it's day-to-day stuff. Remember the MPs' expenses scandal about ten years ago? where many were manipulating the expenses system, getting their moats drained, getting duck houses built with taxpayers' money. Well, we did not like that, that's for sure. Social context is everything. If eyes aren't on you, you'll be more selfish. But we live in secular times, and people don't believe that God's eyes are watching them necessarily. Well, a neat experiment was conducted that showed that that does not matter. Here's what happened. Volunteers were given, say, $20 in $1 bills, and they were then asked to go into a booth and donate a proportion of their cash to a charity through a slot in the booth and keep the rest. Now, there were two conditions. 
One was just an empty booth with nothing on the walls, just a slot for the money. The other one was exactly the same, except there was a photograph mounted on the wall of a robot's face. One of those cute ones with the round ping-pong ball eyes, not dissimilar to a Muppet's. Those who were donating, whilst being watched, in inverted commas, by a photo of some unrealistic eyes, posted a significantly higher proportion of money through the slot in the booth compared to the control group. Another experiment showed in a similar setup that if someone was shown a photograph of the person who would receive the cash, they would give more. Now, don't want to be cynical here, but adverts for charities almost always end up with a large pair of eyes looking right at you. Why? Well, it increases the chances that you'll donate. There are specific parts of the brain that are important in these sorts of actions. When we do an altruistic act, the part of our brain called the insula lights up. It is part of what is known as the limbic system, and it coordinates stimuli by way of sensation and converts them into feelings. The theory is that it also picks up on the behaviours of others and turns them into feelings of self, meaning it makes us more empathic and altruistic. And, as in many things in the living world, there is variation between people, and people with a small insula are, well, more insular. Religion is created from our morals, and our morals allow us to be more responsible, meaning larger groups can form and be maintained, and larger successes can be made. That's why we needed religion. Well, that was the evolution episode. I hope it's giving you some food for thought. Thanks again to Matthew Cobb for putting his two penneth in there about human evolution and morality. And to the lovely folk of Berry Market. Next week is the final episode. And it's Palm Sunday. So we're going to have a little look at that. But we're also going to have a look at the lesser known Fig Sunday. And you can't have Easter without lamb. So I go to a Hebridean sheep farm to find out about primitive sheep breeds. And I cook up some hogget for some friends of the show. If you have any comments, questions or queries about this episode. Or indeed any episode in this series please find me on Twitter at Neil Buttery or go to Instagram and go to doctor, that's dr underscore Neil underscore Buttery or email me at neil at britishfoodhistory.com. My blog, britishfoodhistory.com, has loads of posts with recipes from Britain's past. Click on the Lent tab for more information of the things covered in this series. Have a great week and I'll see you next Sunday for the last one. The producer for this series is Bina Katani and it's a Sonder Radio production. Music